You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. We've been going through the book of Mark uh, this whole year, and today is the culmination. And so just picture some of the stuff we've looked at this year. We, when we look back, we've seen Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist. Then several chapters later, John gets beheaded. We've seen uh, the calling of the disciples. We've seen this feeding of thousands. We've seen the healings of the individual people. We've seen a demon-possessed man come running at Jesus in a graveyard. And we've seen a bleeding woman slowly sneak up and grab the hem of his garment. We've seen a young girl healed because of the faith of her dad. We've seen Jesus teaching on marriage, on divorce, on, on how to live properly on the kingdom of God. We, we've seen the Last Supper, the arrest, the trial, and last week, the crucifixion. Last week, or, or two weeks ago, we left here in, in darkness. We left here in silence because the Son of God had died. But a dead Savior can't save anybody. And we rejoice that Jesus rose. And this is the text we get to look at this morning. This is where we see uh, in Romans chapter 4, it says, He was delivered over death for our sins, but was raised to life for our justification. This chapter, this, this part of this whole story is where it all comes to culmination. This is the exciting part. Because if Jesus had just died, everybody dies. But Jesus rose. And that's what makes this different. That's what makes this, this creaster of celebration that we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus all at the same time. And so I'm excited. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in the last chapter of Mark, Mark, uh, Mark 16. Mark is one of the first <clears throat> few books of the New Testament. Uh, go ahead and turn to there, Mark 16. And as you're turning to there, I want to share a little bit about this chapter. Um, you're going to see that there's a distinction. In many of your Bibles, there's going to be perhaps a solid line and the rest will be italicized, or there will be some point that will distinguish between verse 8 and verse 9 and 9 through 16. And what this is, there's the short ending of Mark, and there's what's called the long ending. And so I want to be able to kind of dive into this a little so you understand, uh, if you're not familiar with this, what the difference here is. Many manuscripts, almost all early manuscripts include Mark 16, 1 through 8. This is very distinctive Mark's writing style, the, the word choices he uses. Uh, th this is very clearly Mark's writing, and this is how Mark ends the story. And you're going to see it's, it's a weird ending. It's an open-ended ending. It's an ending that doesn't really leave us feeling comfortable. It's an ending that doesn't put a little bow on it. It's an ending that's just, just kind of there. It's like a song ending in a minor key that you just want closure, but it never comes. And then you have verses 9 through 16, which is considered the long ending. This ending uh, kind of dives in. It almost revisits the resurrection quickly in verse 9 and 10. And then it goes on to say what the disciples do and, and to be able to kind of give a, a bow to the end of the story, to give a, a summation. Most people, most scholars believe that the verses 9 through 16 were not written by Mark, but that they were added about the second century. They're in some of the, some of the manuscripts, but not the earliest ones. And the writing style, the word choice is different than what Mark has used throughout the book. 
And so this morning, we, we have two options. We could cover it all, which would be fine because it's all in the Bible. We can cover it through verse 8, which would be fine because this was Mark's original writing. And because this whole year, we have been kind of taking ourselves as if we were Mark's original audience. We've tried to connect ourselves as best we could with the Roman Christians that were reading this, facing persecution. With the Roman Christians that are meeting together in quiet places in the hills and under the streets and catacombs, because it's the only safe place that they could be. And we've learned, and we've had this little message from Mark all throughout, to these Christians that are being persecuted, to these Christians that are in fear, to these Christians that are saying, why, are, why am I, where, where is my faith, why am I believing this? That Mark has thoroughly and over and over shown us who Jesus is, who Jesus was, the miracles he did, the teachings he said, and most importantly, that he was the Son of God. And then Mark leaves us, those Christians, those Roman, those Roman Christians with this awkward ending. And I almost feel like it seems natural to leave us with that ending as well. So that's where we're going to get here, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. It begins, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Mark, as we've seen throughout, is, is, it takes great importance in time frame. So he let us know that the Sabbath is over, that they're doing respectfully what they're supposed to do as good Jewish women. And so they wait till the Sabbath, and it's early the next morning, and they head to go and care for Jesus' body. And it's important, Mark gives us these little details that they were carrying spices. And, and for you and me, that might not mean a lot. I've never done anything with a dead body to know how to preserve it, to what to care for. But for normal passing of a loved one, they would anoint it with oil. But for the passing of a king, they would anoint it with spices. So the sign on the cross that says, here is the king of the Jews. They agree. Here lies the king of the Jews. And so they go to this graveyard early in the morning, and, and you can picture the fog just kind of rolling off and the sun coming up. And they arrive at the graveyard, and they begin to wonder, how are we going to get that stone moved away? So it's very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? See, Jesus was buried in a, a tomb. It was more like a kind of a cave that would have been carved out of the rocks, and, and people would often put a big square stone in front uh, of that cave to protect them, the body from grave robbers and from animals and anything that would want to make its way in. But the really wealthy, they would have a rounded stone and a little rivet in front of the cave where the stone would roll and settle into place. And so it would be even harder to move that stone. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. He had his own tombstone, his own graveyard, his own grave spot picked out, and he put Jesus there instead. And a stone was rolled into place, a round stone rolled and thud, placed in the rut. These women wouldn't have been able to move the stone. It's, it's too big. It would take the, take the power of multiple men. And so they're wondering, what, what were we thinking? We're, we're going to get here. We got the spices, but we didn't think. What about that stone? But verse 4 says, but when they looked up, when they saw the stone, which is very large, had been rolled away. 
Matthew 28, verse 2 tells us, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, rolled back the stone and sat on it. The stone was miraculously moved. And so they enter in. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. I love this. I think I would have been alarmed at the empty tomb. I think I, I'm personally, I would have been alarmed just being in a graveyard at, you know, the break of dawn, and, and I would have been like, we're out of here. And, and, but they weren't bothered by the empty tomb. They weren't bothered by the stone being removed, but they get in there, and there's a young man seated on the right side, a place of authority, and they're alarmed. They know this is an angel. Every time that we find an angel in the Bible, people are alarmed, people are scared. And so their first instinct is fear. Why is an angel here? And he says, don't be alarmed. He said, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He assures them, in case you're wondering, are you at the wrong tomb? This is it. I know what you're looking for, and maybe you're thinking, oh, we took the wrong turn, or are we at the wrong section? No, no, no. You're in the right spot. You're looking for Jesus. Don't be alarmed. And then he says this, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? He turns and says, see, this is where he was. I know you ladies were there when, when, when Joseph put the body in here. This is it. But he has risen. And it's important, well, usually I don't get into the, the Greek, but it's important here to know that this is passive tense implying that God rose Jesus from the dead. The same God that brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the same God that created the world, the same God rose Jesus from the dead is the same God that wants a relationship with you and me. The angel continues, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. I love this part that brings up and Peter. Don't don't forget Peter too. Because Peter, if you remember, was the disciple while they all fled and left Jesus alone. Peter was the disciple that followed and, and denied him three times before the rooster crows. Peter's the one that I'm sure for days now has been kicking himself has been critical of himself, has been thinking he failed Jesus, wondering what was he doing all this time? Why, why didn't he stand up for Jesus? What kind of man is he? Well, that he felt like a coward, he felt like a chicken, he felt so ashamed. And don't forget who told Mark this testimony. Peter. Peter was the one that shared this testimony with Mark, and Mark wrote it down, and so Peter makes sure to include he said to the, tell the disciples and me that Jesus is waiting. I love that part because it's a great example that no matter how much we mess up, Jesus is there waiting for us. That for me, as much as I mess up, as much as I sin, as much as mistakes I make, Jesus isn't going to leave me. He's there waiting for me. That no matter your baggage, no matter your past, no matter the sin you're carrying, no matter whatever is, is laid on you, Jesus is there waiting for you. It, it beckons to Romans 8, 
Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love this. No, no height nor depth, no anything in creation, no denying him three times before the rooster crows, not, not, neither my sins that I'm committing are going to keep me from the love of Christ our Lord. Jesus is there waiting. And he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Let Peter know, I'm here for you. I got your back. In verse 8, it says, trembling and bewildered, the, woman, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The other gospels share how they went and told the disciples, and many believe what Mark is saying here is that they went straight to, to the disciples and, and they didn't tell anyone else on their journey they didn't tell the people setting up their shops early in the morning. They didn't tell anyone there in the graveyard visiting their loved ones. They didn't tell anyone they encountered because they were afraid. And this is how Mark ends his message. This is the ending. But it almost seems it's, it's a beginning as much as it's an ending. I feel like Mark was kind of given a transition to here's the story of Jesus. Here's the story of his three years, of his ministry, of his teachings, of his miracles. Here's the story of his death. And here's a glimpse of his resurrection. And the women have found this out. And what are they going to do? As he's writing these Christians hiding in the catacombs, He's writing to them and saying, hey, here's the miracles he did. Here's the teachings he did. Here's the death of Jesus, and he rose again. What are you going to do? It's almost as if Mark was bringing his audience into the story, finally at the end. And now the Roman Christians are part of it. You've been presented the story. You know everything about him. You know that he died for your sins, and you know that he rose again, and you know that he's waiting for you in Galilee. What are you going to do about it? And as much as Mark is writing to those Roman Christians, I believe very much he was writing to us. He's saying you've followed along throughout this whole book. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the teachings. You've seen all that Jesus has done. You've walked with us as we've seen his, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, now his resurrection. What are we going to do with that as he's waiting for us in Galilee? What's it look like to be a disciple? The disciples that find out this news from the women, what are they going to do? These Roman Christians that hear this story, what are they going to do? For you and I, what are we going to do? How does this impact our every day? How does this impact your week? How does this impact the way we live, what, the, the things we do, the relationships we have, the way we act at work, the way we act at school? What does this mean to us? This is how Mark leaves it. There's not a, a little bow to the ending that we can say, okay, it's done, because it's not done. The story continues on for the Romans. The story continues on for us. How does the story continue on for you and me? Have we pointed anyone to Christ this week? The women were told, go and get the disciples. Go and tell Peter, 
have we gone and told anybody, whether through our words or through our actions? Honestly, sometimes maybe we're even telling the opposite, that our testimony that people know we're a Christian, but the way we act, the way uh, with our short fuse or the, the struggles and sins that we're falling prey to that people see, what are we telling them? Are we pointing anyone to Christ? First John, there, there's an introduction to the book of First John, and, and I love what it says. It says, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Remember, this is one of the disciples that walked with him. From the beginning, he's heard him. He's seen him with his eyes. That which we have looked at our hands and touched This we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. We've touched Jesus. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now he's talking about the resurrection, who is with the Father and then has come to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That together, that all of us that believe that we would have fellowship together, that we're a family of Christ. That that we could come together in this meeting, that we could come together for a family dinner party tonight. That we could come together with the family of Christ that spans the world and spans time. That we have fellowship in him because of his resurrection. But he also says that we have fellowship with each other, but we also have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection, we now have fellowship with God. It's a horizontal fellowship and a vertical fellowship that we now have. And so what does this look like? What does this mean? What does this fellowship together and fellowship with God look like? He continues on in verse 4. It says, we write this to make our joy complete. It looks like joy. At this time of Christmas, that we, we, we have joy that the Son of God came to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas is a time of joy that, that God came, but so is Easter a time of joy that, that he died, but that he rose and our sins are washed free, are wiped free. Joy. Easter is joy. Christmas is joy. Christer is a time of joy. So how will we respond? This is how Mark leaves the story. Kind of open-ended on that minor key. How are we going to respond? Note that I love this part. Who is he talking to? The angel. He's talking to those women. And we got, we got Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene, who's mentioned in all the Gospels. And we got Mary, the mother of James. Uh, some believe this is James, the son of Alphaeus. So this would have been the Mary from Galilean ministry. And then you have Salome, who's James and John's mother. So she's also from Galilee. So put that together. Because this is what Jesus, is, what the angel is saying to these women. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I love this, that Jesus is there in your home. Go home and meet Jesus. Right where you're at is where Jesus is wanting to be. 
Right where you are is where Jesus is ready to meet you. It says to these women, go home. Jesus is there. And so for us, when, when perhaps maybe you're looking for Jesus at this time, where we're struggling in our faith, where, where we might be walking and got questions, where's, are we going to meet Jesus? Right where you're at. For those of us that are in the midst of, of struggles or, or sins or burdens or just the pressures of life that, that are lost in the hecticness of the season, that's where Jesus wants to meet you. Perhaps you just got a new house, or perhaps you're being evicted, perhaps a new job, perhaps you've just lost one. This is where Jesus wants to meet you. At your work, at your school, in the midst of a big presentation, in the midst of finals, this is where Jesus wants to meet you. At home, when you're caring for your kids and they just continue to seem to yell at you back, when you can't make bills meet, when you're struggling, this is where Jesus is waiting to meet you. He is there, right where we are, wanting to be with us. And in the midst of that, what is our response? As Mark leaves this open for, for a response for the Roman Christians, as Mark leaves this open for a response from us, Jesus is waiting for you right where you're at. You don't have to go some far off place. You don't have to do some extreme thing. Jesus is waiting for you here and now. How do we respond? For many of you, I believe you have Jesus in your heart and you've, you met him long ago. So then the question is, I know Jesus is here. I'm, I'm in my Galilee. Jesus is with me at work. Jesus is with me at home. Jesus is with me at, at school. Then the question is, and the example is, he tells the women to go and tell others. I love how Mark ends with a, a testimony of evangelism. It's time to go. It's time to go and bring others closer to God. It's time to go and bring others closer to Christ. It's time to go. And this is a perfect season. It's a Christmas season to go and initiate a conversation with someone that you can share about Jesus Christ. And it's not weird because it's Christmas. Everyone loves Christmas. That you could go and say, hey, are you going somewhere for Christmas Eve? Invite them to church here. Or if they say, I don't know, and they're going, thinking about going to another church, go to church with them, whatever that looks like. Reach out and bring someone else to Galilee to meet Jesus.